Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Mitchell, the portfolio manager and co-founder of Ophir, the asset manager that runs three different strategies. Out of those three strategies, it's really the Ophir Opportunities Fund that they started with 12 years ago that they're most well known for, a smaller cap fund that has had phenomenal performance with a compound annual growth rate of 26.1% to investors since inception back in 2012 and performance for the 2019 year of 43.3%. With performance numbers like these, it's little wonder that Andrew is in hot demand and it's good to have him on the show to join us with his thoughts about investment, the current market, the style, um, and how he thinks about investment as well as the importance of alignment of interests and the structure of firms managing money, which I think you'll find very interesting. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast as a reminder to listeners that this isn't designed to be, nor is it a recommendation of any specific fund. It's only for information purposes. You're encouraged to seek advice before making any investments in all the investments that you look at. Uh, Please remember to send me feedback you can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please remember to leave feedback and review the podcast. That really helps us on all of the platforms such as uh, Apple Podcasts. If you can do that, that's great. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew. Andrew, welcome to Inside the Road. Thanks very much for having me, David. Andrew, perhaps you could kick off by giving us a little bit of an understanding of your background and also the firm uh, you founded and and the purpose around that. Yeah, so um, the business I founded is Ophir Asset Management, but in terms of my background, uh, I am a boy from Adelaide. I grew up in the suburbs of Adelaide. Um, I went to, uh, I studied um, economics, did honours economics at university and then did postgrad and master's degree in finance. Um, I went to work for uh, Peter Costello at Federal Treasury in Canberra so, um, and the other Treasury Ministers uh, and I worked in um, forecasting global economies. Um, after that I went to Commonwealth Bank as an economist and that's where I met David Paradise and that was my uh, entry into the uh, investment industry was working uh, with David Paradise. Now I started in 2007. And if you think back at the time, it was an absolute baptism of fire because within six months or nine months really of starting, uh, we had the GFC. And so that was like my first big memory of being a uh, fund manager and I was a portfolio manager at that stage and having to deal with this complete market meltdown. Uh, and I think that really defined my, um, my character in terms of you know, having to, with your back up against the wall, generate some good returns and keep investors happy when it's a very difficult, difficult time. Um, So in 2012, uh, myself and Stephen Ng left Paradise Investment Management. We had generated some great returns there. Uh, We ran a small cap fund and had done 20% outperformance per annum. But the key thing was, was not the performance, but was that time, getting back to what I was saying before, it was during the GFC. 
And so given that, there were some big super funds that wanted to um, support us. That fund at Paradise was the number one performing fund in Australia at that stage over the last four years. And they said, well, if you can manage money in bad times, you can manage money in good times. And so we were off to the races and we got an in-stay mandate when we started. And that was the humble beginnings of Ophir Asset Management in a office that was literally, I remember when we first started, our office was literally two desks, no air conditioning, um, no windows that opened. Um, Stephen and I were sitting right next to each other and we just we just had to make it work, our fund. And um, yeah, the rest is history. And fast forward eight years and that main fund, the Ophir uh, Opportunities Fund has performed exceptionally well. Uh, congratulations to yourself and Stephen. I, I wanna say uh, the net return has been something around 26% per annum compound annual growth. Um, and I think last year it might've been up around 43%, which is uh, uh, very, very admirable. Yeah, it's funny, I, I, I don't actually know the, I only found out what the returns were of the f that fund uh, at the end of the year. We look at it monthly and we just try to do the best we can each month and then mm -hmm. adds up at the end. So yeah, it was good to have a good year last year. Um, and we just always continue to try and do the best we can every every year, which is, just comes from hard work. Where's the name come from? So Ophir is, uh, well, it's, it comes from the Old Testament, the Book of Kings for uh, your listeners who um, are uh, scholars of King Solomon. Um, they would know that uh, he took his wealth from the port of Ophir. Uh, but there's also a town in um, country New South Wales, just outside of Orange, called Ophir or called Ophir there. Um, and that was where gold was first found in Australia in 1851. And so we, being small cap investors, we like to be the first to find those little gold nuggets because it's the first to the party, they're the ones that make the real money. What were some of the key things that you learned managing money uh, back in those early times through the GFC that have stuck with you today? Look, there was a big thing. Para David Paradise, obviously a very, very smart man. Um, we went through the downturn and there was all the newspaper headlines were horrible. You know, you think Australia's about to go, you know, every company's about to go under. I would speak to friends who worked at big funds and you'd say, oh, you know, it's, wow, the world's bad. Have you been doing any travel lately? And they're like, there's a complete travel ban on. Um, these are listed companies. They're trying to keep their cost down so they can still, their share price doesn't go down further. David Paradise, to his credit, said, I want you out there. Now things are happening and changing faster than they have and can go down very quickly. I want you traveling than you, more than you ever have before because we need to keep our fingers on the pulse. So... I, that was a key investment sort of lesson and I think a real great way of structuring the business uh, like we have. We don't fly business class, we don't stay in fancy hotels, but we travel uh, and we travel a lot of it, uh, a lot of the time. Um, I think, you know, really learning from your mistakes uh, is very important um, and we make a lot of mistakes, but when you're investing in those downturns and those sort of things. Mistakes are expected. But the important thing is that you don't let them get you down when the market's down 5% in a day. Uh, you think about how can you turn this around? Like how can you um, uh, come out and get better returns for your investors? And it's not looking at the screen when there's all 
read on the screen. It's actually um, just doing a lot of hard yakka work. And I think that was the work ethic that I got from working at Paradise uh, is second to none. I start work at, um, geez, I leave home for work at 5.50 in the morning. I'm at work every day at quarter past six to 6.20, depending on how well uh, I go with traffic and just, you know, work and work and work and just try and get the best return. But I love my job. Like I've got the best job in the world. It's so interesting. So I don't care about it, but that's, that's what it's about. It's just outworking your competitors. Yourself and Stephen have been uh, very vocal in, uh, I guess, talking about the alignment of interest between yourselves as yeah. the founders and investors to say that uh, a lot of your own wealth is tied up in the fund, uh, family, friends, and all and sundry um, <clears throat> to, to drive home that alignment of interest. Is that still the case? I think in past discussions, um, you know, I think you may have even gone as far to say everything else in your life is rented. Um, what, what's the update on that position now that I, th I think the group, you're investing over a billion dollars, right? Uh, yeah, we've got probably one and a half bill. Um, I do not own a couch. I don't own cushions on a couch. Uh, I don't even own a bed. Um, still exactly the same. I own sheets, I own pillows, I own cutlery, I own clothes, thank God. Um, and I own a lot of units in the Ophir funds and I'm literally investing in the global fund this month. I've been buying the uh, listed high conviction fund. It trades under ticker OPH. I bought that this month, last month, the year, the month before. As we make profit, we just keep investing it in the stocks. Likewise, the staff, uh, not in the stocks rather, in the funds, we keep mm -hmm. investing. Our own personal money, likewise the staff. You get paid very well at Ophir, but you have to invest that in the funds. Uh, and it's locked up for a, quite a period of time. So everyone comes over to Ophir and says, right, can't own shares, I'm investing in the funds. Now that creates a great alignment. And the next thing that flows from that is we keep the size of our funds a lot smaller than our competitors because we actually make more money in last year from the returns of our funds than we do on the profit of the funds. So we wanna make our money on performance fees and we wanna make our money on the money we've got invested in the in the fund. We don't want to make the money by just raising a lot of money and being lazy. And so that's where we think Ophir is a lot different to our competitors. This isn't really a business model that many funds at all, if any, have adopted in Australia. Talk to us a little bit about, you touched on the, the three mandates that you've got at the moment, uh, what they are and what the differentiators are between them. Okay, so the first fund is the Ophir Opportunities Fund. It's a small cap fund, 35 stocks, um, we're looking for businesses that are doing something different. In Australia, they're taking market share, they're structurally growing, um, and hopefully the market that they're in is growing as well. And this is long only? Long only, yep. Uh, with great management and great balance sheets. Because if you've got good management and a good balance sheet with a good business that's generating a lot of cash, they can do far more than you ever expect. They'll make this left field X. Uh, left field acquisition that's just so fantastic and you didn't even think of it yourself mm -hmm. because that CEO is doing the work for you. So that small cap fund, as you said before, I think it's done 33% gross, 26-27% after fees per annum return over the last seven, eight years. The high conviction fund, that um, what that is, is that's listed now, trades under ticker OPH. Uh, 
that fund is a blend of a mid-cap and a small-cap fund. One of the most frustrating things for us previously, having a small-cap fund, was when a company went into the top 100, we had to sell it. Mm-hmm. Now we can continue to own those. So the A2 milks, the afterpays, we've continued to own them as they've gone into the top 100, where we've been forced to sell them uh, previously. You know, the realestate.com, we sold that at $10 and we were high-fiving each other and then it goes to 100 You know, it's mm-hmm. a... So that's what that fund uh, enables us to do. And um, I think that's done around 25, 26% gross return and 20% after fees for the last four or five years. And finally, we've got the global fund. Uh, Super exciting from our perspective. Um, We've taken the process, the team uh, as it is, we've hired uh, five additional staff over the last couple of years. And we've taken our process and adopted it globally in a small cap fund. Um, very much like our Australian small cap fund, 30 stocks, look at the companies the same way, the same team, but that has generated in the last 12 months, I think 76% um, return before fees and I think 61, uh, 62, 63% or something like that after fees. And so we've shown that the process actually works um, globally, which for us as fund managers is just super exciting. So how many stocks in that portfolio? 30. 30 and the size of those companies you said small uh, oh they it's the average market caps between 1 billion and 1 and a half billion which is much the same as the Australian small cap fund yes whereas the high conviction fund the average size is about 5 billion okay right and and what sort of names would sit inside that international small cap look, fund look that's the thing it? about global investing yes i doubt even though i'm sure you've got a vast array of very different people who yes. will listen to this. No one's heard of any of the companies that we've got in the funds because in the global fund, in the US, in Germany, if you're a one, $2 billion company yeah, you've got and you're no doing cover. well, nobody's, nobody's necessarily heard of you. So um, a company that we own, um, which people might want to, to look up because it's one that you can think about, is a company called Celsius, which is a... Um, a uh, healthy, if you like, if it can be healthy, but a more organic uh, energy drink company that's taking market share from Monster at the moment. It's doing very well. Um, we own a company called Veru, which is uh, ma- uh, makes female condoms, but it's also a prostate cancer drug company. Um, and uh, yeah, I can list off uh, many more. And a company called Cardlytics, which is a uh, loyalty uh, scheme, uh, uses uh, basically banks, the big you know, JP Morgan Chase in the US will use it uh, as a loyalty to win customers where it goes over the credit card data and it would say, David, you've, uh, you buy pizza every Friday night. Mm-hmm. Um, Domino's Pizza will now offer you and you see all your loyalty things offers you 15% off um, your pizzas and they'll have a big list by looking at your credit card data where you'll get your um, discounts and that company has done very well and it's winning more and more banks um, to be able to give it. The point is these companies are all unique. They're all taking market share in these big biz- in these big industries. In Australia, if they were listed here, everyone would have heard, over the- heard of them. Everyone would be talking about them, investing in them. There'd be so much hype. They'd trade on this huge multiple. Whereas in the US, in Germany, Japan, the likes, um, they're just one of many companies. Growth is an, on an international scale is not scarce globally. 
So you can find these great companies that are undervalued, um, that no one really cares about, but are off the radar, and that's what we do. And what sort of countries are you targeting within that fund? Is it uh, going to represent an MSCI, or is it going yeah. to be... Uh, you know, far more weighted towards growing Asia or Europe. Where, where do you? Great question. What, yeah. what, what are the question? What do you see are the tactical advantages at the moment, or where are you seeing most of? Well, we're not macro investors, so we're we're buying every company on its fundamentals. So we don't care if it's listed in Germany, if it's selling to Germans, if it's selling to Swedes, but it's listed in Germany, if it's mm -hmm. a Japanese company that only sells to Chinese people. It doesn't matter where it is. We're not playing a macro call, even though I am a macro economist. Um, we're doing it from the bottom up, but it's very much the Western world. We want to be able to walk out of a meeting if we're able to see management and still have the watch attached to our wrist. So, you know, if you're going into a lot of those East Asian countries, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of corporate governance issues. So we stay well, well clear of the EM, the emerging markets. Yep. Uh, think of it more as the US, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, France, that sort of Western Europe. US, Canada, UK, and a bit of Japan, and then you've sort of covered it off. So it's actually not as no big China. as you think. No China. No, no China. We're out of the EM. There's no EM. These are all countries which have got very high corporate governance. So, um, you and, know, and like Japan, uh, are you finding many companies there that you're excited about? Japan's an interesting one. It's a tougher one to work through, but it's an interesting one because. When there's IPOs there, it's really shameful to have an IPO that doesn't go well. So you want to be having a look at the IPOs that, that go there because they can do very well. So we're looking at it more from that market. We have to pick where we spend our time. Japan's not um, Japan's around 10, 9% of the MISCI World Mid-Cap Index. So it's not huge. We don't, and it's a big flight to get there. So um, we're not spending huge amount of time. But we're certainly looking over the IPOs that um, come uh, that uh, come up from there. Talk us through the investment process and idea generation for that international fund. Given that the universe is so large, um, I'm interested to understand how that process works for you in a practical sense. So, you've got a lot of companies out there, and the the common feedback we hear is like, "There's so many companies out there. How can you possibly cover them all?" We don't. That's mm -hmm. pure simple. We can't. But we see it like a, a haystack. And if you think about Australia, as a fund manager, there's a haystack and there's a few needles in it. Um, afterpays, uh, you know, your A2 milks and the likes. And if you haven't owned those in the last five years, the, the few, um, you've had pretty average performance. The global haystack is a lot bigger. But there's a lot more needles in there. So we just have to find some of those needles, just like we have to do in Australia. And it's a lot easier to um, do that, we find, if you run the right screen. So we use a lot of data-based analysis. We've got a um, dedicated person who does this, that we're looking for different things about a business which would indicate that it's about to go through an accelerated uh, growth period. And we've been able to do that quite well to date. So we can spend our time efficiently. And do you put much weight on, you know, you talked about earlier uh, in your career about uh, rubber on the road and meeting with clients. Are you upholding the same standard with international companies or are you happy to do more of the work remotely? Yeah, so the rubber on the, the, rubber on the road or burning shoe, shoe leather, 
um, is very important, and we do a lot of travel. So I was I flew to um, the US. I was in San Francisco at a conference last week. Um, I'm going to Germany in um, five six weeks. Uh, so I'm traveling a lot as uh, all the staff. Um, but you do have to do a lot more conference calls because the tyranny of distance from Australia is um, still real, even though we can get to the other side of the world in 24 hours rather than six months now. It, uh, does, make it, it does make it harder. So you need to, when you get there, spend your time uh, very well. And so we screen a lot of the companies via phone and then we know which ones to go see when we're over there in travelling. Circling back to the Opportunities Fund and the smaller companies where I guess the companies really built its name and, and come from. Can you give our listeners a little uh, insight into the investment philosophy and how you think about things? Um, maybe bring that to life through you know, two, two investments, one that's been a really good investment for you and one on the flip side where it hasn't worked out um, and, and what sort of learnings you've taken from and we've, that. And we've got plenty of those, <laughs> uh, plenty of mistakes. Um, we had analysis done on the Ophir, this is a couple of years ago now, but on Ophir for the last five, five years, and someone went through every, um, every stock we'd ever invested in. What they found was that we, are, we get it right 65% of the time, which puts us in the top 15 to 20% of funds, which is good, um, better than good, but it's not excellent. But what they found was we're in the top one or two percent in terms of getting our position sizes right. So we actually spend a lot of time trying to get an edge on the company. We were well, we're told by the company that we were the first institution in Australia to buy A2 milk shares. Now I want to maybe give your listeners a bit of an insight into the work we did which enabled us to buy 5% of A2 milk at between 50 and 70 cents. So we went and saw Jeff Babbage, the uh, old and now new again CEO of A2 milk. For those who follow A2 milk, they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, it was a milk company. It's differentiated. It's got a bit of technology there, but it wasn't super exciting. However, he told us he was launching Infraformer. We said, wow, this is really exciting because what we try to do as a fund manager is we try to predict the future. Now, the future is very hard to predict when it hasn't happened. But there's future that's happening right now, and let me explain what I'm talking about, because there's stuff that's happening right now, and the future we're predicting is the ASX announcement. And you want to always do this in a legal manner. You never ever want to be inside or you know, have um, uh, information that would get you in trouble. But there are ways of doing this using mosaic theory and putting the pictures of the puzzles together to work out a company's doing very well. So with the case of A2 Milk, we realized if your listeners think about a can of spaghetti, a can of peaches, it doesn't matter. But on the bottom of it, there's a uh, like this barcode thing. And actually what it is, is the manufactured date and time. Now, when they were launching A2 Milk in Australia, we thought this was really powerful. And we went out every, well, multiple times a week, all the staff, and we jotted down the chemist warehouses, the Woolworths and Coles, the manufactured date and the current date. And we watched how that went over time. And what happened 
was the time started coming in. So the first tins were made four or five months ago, then they were four mm -hmm. months ago, then they were three and a half, then they were three months. Higher stock turnover. Exactly right. At the same time we were seeing Sinlay. So we got another idea, Sinlay make the, the infant formula for A2 milk of how fast that they could ramp up their production. We went to see Chemist Warehouse franchisees and understand who's buying these tins of A2 milk. Are they, are they Chinese nationals? Are they favoring A2 milk over Bellamy's? Is this going to China? So we went to China and we found the tins and we asked people, is this selling? And yes, it was. And what we realized by looking at these tins was A2 milk was being bought at a faster rate than it was being produced. And they were soon going to have stockouts. So well before the stockouts, we knew that they were coming. And we didn't think the stock was going to go up 10, 15 times, 20 times. We thought it was going to double, but that's good enough for us. And we got in and then it kept going. And then we kept learning about it and we kept going. Now, we've sold a lot as we've gone. It's still in our top five, 10, but it's, um, you know, we've obviously sold a lot as we've gone, gone along. But that's the process. No one at Ophir will claim that we're the smartest guys in the market. We're not. But we will challenge anyone who thinks that they work harder than us. We'd like to think we work the hardest. The whole team is built of people who have grit. None of us had a super privileged childhood. Um, we've had to earn where we are. Um, now, with that brings that you never feel completely satisfied with the position you're in. You always have to work harder. Um, and so we're always in a constant process of trying to improve and hone our skills in doing just what we did in A2 Milk. Now, we do get them wrong. Um, and as we said, we get one third of our stocks wrong. So a great example of that um, was RCR Tomlinson. People will know that company has gone broke. Um, we invested in that because we did work uh, around a contract that we thought that they could win in New Zealand. Um, it would transform the business from a mining services business into an infrastructure services business, which deserves a lot higher valuation. This was like building roads and rail in New Zealand. Uh, we'd, the work we'd done speaking to people was that they were bidding against a Chinese consortium and there was, there was very little chance that the New Zealand um, government would allow a Chinese-led consortium to win. So we did this work. They're going to win it. It's going to transfer. Then the stock price started going down, and we are like, what have we missed? And it started going down further and further. We couldn't work out what we'd missed, um, but we knew that we'd, we were missing something. And the business was complicated enough that we could be missing something serious. So we just started joining the selling, and we sold and we sold, and we lost probably 30% on the investment. Um, which was really painful at the time. But the company turns out that they had actually blown up a, a solar power station that they were building in Queensland and we saved ourselves losing all the money. So we're not arrogant enough to think that we're smarter than the market and that we can't get taught harsh lessons than the market because we do, but we hope that by not having that arrogance, that, that enables us to save money like we did on RCR, even though it cost us a lot and it was very painful at the time. Andrew, you alluded to limiting the size of your funds as being an advantage. What size uh, is the Opportunities Fund at the moment? So the Opportunities Fund is somewhere between, I don't know the exact size, somewhere between three, 400. We closed it at 
we closed the opportunities fund at $400 million the day it hit $400 million. Take some discipline. And yeah, so we had, and yeah, so the unfortunate thing was there were people who wanted to invest money um, and it filled up very fast at the end. Like all the money when people found out it was closing just came in literally a month and the market was up 10% and it filled up that month. And I remember it just filling up super quick. But once we'd made a commitment to that price, we know that as soon as we um, waver on a commitment that we told other people, then people won't believe anything we say going forward. So we had to close it where it was. Um, the high conviction fund, um, the day it hit 750 mil of capacity, we closed that. And we're trying to work out where we're gonna close the global fund, but we think it's somewhere between 400 and 7,800, and we haven't put a number on it yet. And what's it at the moment? It's between uh, 100 and 200 million. Okay, so plenty of capacity left there. Well, not if we close it at 400. <clears throat> Given those returns, it's um, filling up reasonably fast. It's a good problem. It's a good problem. Yes, yeah. um, Andrew, it, it appears to me that you're very growth orientated and uh, quality orientated. Um, for about the last 18 months, almost two years, the market seems to have favoured that style of investment um, and really shunned value investment. Uh, and we've also seen you know, a, a real expansion in valuations. And there's a lot of people in the market at the moment talking about, well, okay, but this time it's different. Um, you know, this time it's different because the cost of capital is really, really low. So when we run out our valuation models and run forward the discounted cash flow that you're prepared to pay for a stock, you know, maybe 21, 22 times is okay because your discount factor's not 10%, it's 5% because the cost of your capital's come down from five to one type of thing. Um, where do you sit on that explanation or comfort level in people paying higher multiples and or when do you start to become concerned about valuations when you're looking at companies and, and whether or not you'll enter a position you know, or, or is it if they're growing strong enough, you're willing to pay up for it? Um, well, from our point of view, we don't think equities are expensive uh, now because we compare it's a relative game and I think you hit the nail on the head. Interest rates are very low. Fixed interest in uh, some sovereign uh, treasuries, you're getting a negative real rate of interest now. And so if you're able to buy a, a market on 18 times PE, it's basically trading on a 5% yield if you like, just inversing that, um, and you're able to get some growth and some cash out, you're actually generating some reasonable returns. Um, we don't, I say exception, like we talk about A2 Milk and we talk about Afterpay and finding these stru structurally growing stocks. However, our style enables us to pivot um, and buy more value businesses if they start out performing as well. So we don't, while we talk about growth and we're looking for structurally growing stocks, we wouldn't say that, and we say we're style agnostic. Um, to finish the question, the biggest risk we see is uh, if unemployment continues to go down and we start seeing wage inflation um, and the unions uh, and uh, with wage bargaining and the likes, we start seeing that wage inflation come in, interest rates go up. Now, at the early stage, you'll see value stocks rally and they'll probably sell growth stocks, um, which is a risk for us at the moment where our portfolio is. Uh, but that eventually, we think that there's probably a lot of bad 
loans being written now. I remember one of the uh, executive directors at um, Treasury when I first started there, he said, remember, Andrew, good loans are, uh, bad loans are written in good times. Um, and when you've got interest rates so low, it's hard to have the discipline on global companies to be making loans against a adequate cost of capital to be making adequate sort of returns. So if interest rates change, then all of a sudden those returns aren't um, acceptable for that uh, cost of capital. So um, we think, yeah, it could be pretty nasty if um, interest rates go up, but from what we can see, inflation seems benign. We're in a low growth environment. And Domestically in Australia or globally? Globally, um, we're not seeing any sort of real pockets of um, stress in terms of inflation at the moment. And our view is that we're in a low growth market uh, at the moment until some things change. Um, we think the market can go high from here. And I think, you know, like, remember in December, someone asked me um, where I thought the market was going. And I said, look, where interest rates are so low and the central banks flood with liquidity, I can see the market going from 18, 19 times now to 18, 19, 19, 20 times and 5% growth. I can see the market being up 10 to 15%. And we look here this month and we're, and they went, wow, you out of all the fund managers, you, you're the most bullish. And I went, okay, the market's already up 5%. It's already done half my number of 10% growth. So um, yeah, it's uh, there's a wall of money looking for uh, returns and equities do look uh, still cheap in this environment. Andrew, I think that's a great place to leave it. I know you've got to get a plane. Okay. Big weekend on. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us in Inside the Rope. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.